that we've been looking at, and the word offering means to draw near to God. And so God says to his people way back in the book of Leviticus, in the time of Moses, I want to give you a map, I want to give you an outline of how you are to come near to me, how you can be restored to me, how you can be in relationship with me. So in chapter 1 we talked about the burnt offering. The lamb's blood covers my sin. In chapter 2 we talked about the grain offering, symbolic of I surrender my life to God. In chapter 3 it was the peace offering or fellowship offering, celebrating the peace that we now have with God. Chapter 4 last week, the sin offering, which is about dealing with our ongoing sins. And then chapter 5, verse 14 following, gets into the guilt offering. So there are five offerings, a five offering set that God gives to his people. So let's finish tonight with the guilt offering, chapter 5. And I want to dive right into the guilt offering and just see where it takes us. And it'll open up to us all kinds of issues and things which, which will challenge us and hopefully at the end it'll all make sense. Your game? I'm going to try and actually bring it all together at the end as well, so pray for me. Uh, Now, okay, the guilt offering, the last one. Now, there are two different uh, aspects of the guilt offering. Notice what the Lord says to Moses in verse 15. When anyone is unfaithful to the Lord by sinning unintentionally in regard to any of the Lord's holy things, they are to bring to the Lord as a penalty a ram from the flock one without defect, and the proper value in silver according to the sanctuary shekel. So he says, you bring the animal, but you also bring a certain amount of money. Have any of the other sacrifices involved money? No. This one says, hey, bring your animal and bring your checkbook, visa and MasterCard accepted. Now, why is that? Why does money come into the offering? Well, there is the issue of sinning against God, but with the guilt offering, the sin involves some sort of debt. A price has to be paid. So chapter 1, the blood's covered your sin. Chapter 2, you've surrendered your life to God. Chapter 3, you celebrate peace with God. Chapter 4, you're covered for your ongoing sins. Chapter 5 is symbolic of pay back what I owe. It's me acknowledging that when I sin against my brother or sister and when I have wronged them, There's a price that must be paid if there's going to be full restoration. And chapter 5 says, sin has consequences. And symbolically, when you bring this animal, you also bring money. And as a way of saying, I acknowledge that there are consequences to what I've done. And I want to make every effort to make things right with my neighbour. So chapter 5, verses 14 to 16, sets out the basic pattern of the guilt offering. Firstly, sin. Secondly, bring an animal, a ram. Thirdly, pay the money. Fourthly, the priest offers the animal and it's done. You're forgiven. Your guilt is taken away. Then there are two case studies of the guilt offering, 5, 17 to 19, and then 6, 1 to 7. In the first case study, we see God's disturbing grace. In the second case study of the guilt offering, we see God's demanding grace. Yes, I borrowed those headings from somewhere else. God's disturbing grace, firstly, and God's demanding grace, secondly. They're my two headings. In the first one, 5, 17 to 19, it's a bit of a strange one and everyone's kind of scratching their heads, why is this here? 
But the scenario is a person's sins probably related to some of the holy things that are mentioned back in verse 15. Certain things are meant to be given to God. They're owed to God. Maybe this guy harvested his olive crop and he neglected to tithe the olive oil that he'd gotten from the olive crop. Or maybe he, it was a barley harvest and he stashed the barley harvest and forgot to put aside the tithe of the barley harvest and then later bring it to God. He's not sure what is the case. In verse 17, he doesn't know. He realises his guilt and most commentators say that the Hebrew word here for realises his guilt means he feels guilty. He has a guilty conscience. He has pangs of guilt. And he knows that he's done something wrong. But he doesn't know what it is. What can he do? Verse 18, he brings a ram, the priest offers it for him, and the key thing is, again, in verse 18, he didn't know what he had done wrong. When we put all this together, what's going on? Apparently, a genuine offence was committed by this guy, but he didn't realise it. Maybe things were busy at the barley harvest, his daughter had the flu, his wife was downtown, and he put the, the harvest away and forgot to tithe the part of the barley harvest to God, he doesn't know. He doesn't remember. He just has this sense. He just feels guilty. And he senses he has done something terribly wrong. He's upset. He's disquieted. He doesn't know what it is that he has done. And it's like God is kind of making him sense this guilt because he has done something wrong. He's sensing through God's prompting, his neglect, his wrong. God works through our conscience sometimes, doesn't he? Even though he can't put his finger on it, what can he do? He brings the ram to the priest and the priest offers it on the altar and he's forgiven. His guilt is taken away. He doesn't make restitution in this case because he doesn't know what it is that he has done wrong. So God has apparently disturbed and activated this man's guilt and he senses he's done something wrong and he has, but he doesn't know exactly what it is. But there is provision in the guilt offering for this man with a sensitive conscience, even though he doesn't know what it is that he's done, he knows he's done something and even that is taken away, it's covered, he's forgiven and even if he remembers what it is later, it's already covered, it's already dealt with, it's already forgiven. His debt has been paid. Now some people call this God's disturbing grace, making him sensitive to and aware of his guilt, even though he can't quite nail it down. Now this seems healthy to me. This is a person with a healthy conscience. Now I know it's possible to be, to have a super sensitive conscience and I know some of us have an overly sensitive conscience where we're even guilty, feeling guilty about things that we haven't done wrong. But probably most of us don't have that problem. And I'd say most of us are pretty unaware of how guilty we really are and unaware of how pervasive sin is in our lives. So when God's disturbing our conscience, we ought to pay attention to that. We ought to welcome that. We ought to deal with that. We ought not to shut that down. That is a good thing from God. It's a positive and through that, through letting that impact us and then doing, coming to God with that issue, we become less hard-hearted and more aware of how pervasive sin is in our life. 
It's healthy to have this kind of sensitivity to God prompting us, a kind of holy anxiety. Job had it. Not only with reference to himself, but with reference to his own children. A kind of holy anxiety about even their sin. So Job in chapter 1 verse 5 of the book of Job, apparently his family was close-knit and the brothers would celebrate the sisters' birthday birthdays and have a huge party, have this massive banquet and there were lots of them and they would throw these parties and at the end of the banqueting, Job, the father, Job 1 verse 5, would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them thinking perhaps... My children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. Perhaps my children have sinned. They had such a good time, yes, but in all the partying, in all the revelry, perhaps they curse God. Perhaps they renounce God. I want to make sure that their sin is covered. Even if they did it unintentionally, I want to make sure that their guilt is removed. And Job is zealous for the holiness of his own children. He's moved to intercede for them. And I think that's good. That's what parents, that's what we ought to be doing. And how much more for us when God disturbs our consciences, when we know there's something wrong, that we ought to take it to him and deal with it with him. It should drive us to say, even the sins that may be hidden from me, I want God to forgive me. I want to come to God. I want to feel that he has forgiven me and that he has dealt with it completely. Isn't that a healthy attitude? To respond to our consciences that way. Psalm 19 verse 12 and 13 is a perfect prayer for us. How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Is that healthy? Yeah. A sensitive conscience, a prayerfulness, coming to God, Please remove this sin from my life, whatever it is. Is it healthy to let our activated consciences drive us to Jesus who is the one who takes our sins away through his cross? Absolutely. So the first case is God's disturbing grace. There is provision when we're feeling guilty to come to God and he will deal with it. In fact, he already has dealt with it through his son. Well, the second case study of the guilt offering is about God's demanding grace. Notice chapter 6, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, If anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord by deceiving a neighbor about something entrusted to them or left in their care or about something stolen or if they cheat their neighbor or if they find lost property and lie about it, or if they swear falsely about any such sin that people may commit, when they sin in any of these ways and realize their guilt. Now what's going on here? If anyone deceives their neighbor about something entrusted to them. This is really common, isn't it? A neighbor is going away. He might leave something of value with his neighbor or trusted friend, say a really expensive mountain bike. (laughs) He leaves it. He's going on a trip overseas. He leaves his mountain bike in the care of his neighbour or friend. What if the neighbour then sells the mountain bike and pockets the money? And when this guy comes home and asks for it, he says, look, I don't have it, sorry, it's been stolen. Somebody took it. What are you going to do? 
you suspect foul play, but all you have to go on is this man's word. So you take him, and I think this is the procedure, you take him to the tent of meeting and his neighbour, and this neighbour you left your mountain bike with, you'd get him to swear an oath in God's name in front of the priests, in front of the tabernacle, you get him to swear in God's name that he did not rip you off. Do you see what's going on here? He might have sold the bike and then say, someone stole it. And then, in this case, if you read on, he has the gall to break the third commandment and to go before God's presence and before the priest and swear in God's name that he did not steal it when he actually did. Now, there are other examples here, and there are many kinds of cheating your neighbour. Verse 2. Another way to cheat a neighbour is to withhold wages. Someone works for you, your neighbour works for you, don't pay him. Refuse to cough it up. He desperately needs the money. You keep withholding the money. His family needs it, but you keep keep cheating him of the money. And it's so wrong. Notice verse 3. He finds something lost and then lies about it. Something like he finds a stray ox and he takes it into his own herd. And actually it's a neighbour's ox that has just wandered from his neighbour. And he's obligated by the law to seek that neighbour out, to find the owner of the ox and to return it. But an ox is a very valuable thing. <laughs> and finders keepers, so loses weepers. So he, he puts it in his own stock of animals and someone asks him about it and he says, oh no, I've always had that ox. And he lies about it. So these are pretty gross sins and these are very common sins. If someone is in that kind of situation and they commit that kind of offence, can they be restored? Is there a way back? Yes, verse 4. They must return what they have stolen or taken by extortion or what was entrusted to them or the lost property they found or whatever it was that they swore falsely about. They must make restitution in full, add a fifth of the value to it And give it all to the owner on the day they present their guilt offering. So what's the way back from this sin? He realises his guilt. He feels guilty. And he is guilty. He's going to have to try to make it right. Verse 4, he has to give back what he's stolen. Or what he got by cheating or whatever. And he has to add 20%, a fifth, in interest. Verse 5. And then he brings the ram... And the priest offers a ram as a sacrifice. That's the way back he can be restored to God. Now, do you see the two different aspects here? Firstly, restitution. The money he gives, the 120%, is not for the court costs. It goes back to the victim. Verse 5, you give it to the guy you've wronged by defrauding him. And then, secondly, Then you go and offer the sacrifice through the priest. So it's restitution, firstly, then atonement. Two aspects. Your sin is forgiven, but you have to repay. Now notice here, when he does this, he doesn't just come to the priest and say, hey, I've committed this wrong, here's a ram, okay, cool, guilt offering, it's all done and dusted. So it's definitely not saying that. It's saying, no, no, no. No, you first make restitution with the person you have cheated. You have to face your neighbour. You have to make it right with your neighbour that you've wronged. 
plus you have to bring the sacrifice. What this is about is you cannot avoid the one that you've wronged. You have to show that your repentance is genuine in a tangible, visible, actual way. You need to restore what you took plus a surcharge. Restitution is involved. You cannot avoid your neighbour. And you don't just go off and offer your ram. No. You must go to your neighbour and repay. Notice the order. You get right with your neighbour and then you come and offer the sacrifice. That's the way to be restored. That's the order. Now I'm calling this God's demanding grace. Don't overlook your neighbour. If you've lied to him, you've wronged him, you must deal with him or her as well as offer the sacrifice. You can't avoid it. Isn't that the demanding grace that Jesus talks about as well? Doesn't this principle carry directly over into the New Testament? Do you remember what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 23? Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, he's referring to what offering? The guilt offering. If you're coming to make payment, if you're offering your gift on the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, it means you've wronged somebody, then leave your gift there in front of the altar. Don't even think about offering it. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Jesus says, you want a relationship with God, you want to be tight with God, don't even think about offering your gift until you first make amends with those that you have wronged. Because how I treat you when I've wronged you and how I work at making amends with you is a reflection of my relationship with who? With God. And Jesus says, don't come to God and try to be all holy and offer your gifts. and Don't try to go through the outward ritual of sacrifice if you aren't right with your brothers and sisters. And if you have wronged somebody and you have not made it right, then don't come to me until you have made it right. Because if you come to me having wronged me, you're asking me, says God, to do something that you are not prepared to do. Our relationships with each other are important. Do you agree? And when somebody has wronged somebody and they take it lightly, the alarm bells ought to be going off in our heads. Because if somebody says, yeah, I stepped on them, I cheated them, I betrayed them, and they have no burden, if they have no sense of, I've got to try and do something to make amends, at least apologise, I've got to... I've got to go to them. If they have no burden, then what they're really saying is, hey, God's not that important to me. So Jesus says, if things aren't right between you and somebody else and it's your fault, then don't bother offering your gift. In fact, leave your gift. The idea is, lay that animal down. Even if the priest's knife is up and ready to kill that animal, leave the animal right there. Run to your friend. Don't even think about entering into God's presence if you've wronged somebody and you haven't done anything to do uh, to make it right. And God will say, hey, you're a hypocrite. If you are not prepared to make things right and yet you come to God and ask him to make things right. 
And when we gather together and to sing and pray and all that we do, Jesus says, great, fantastic. And first, <laughs> go and pay your bills. Repair the burnt bridges you've caused in relationships. Make amends for anyone that you've cheated. Meet your obligations to your family. Sort it out and then you can really sing <laughs> to me. Then, you know, that's really worship. And the, the guilt offering is saying, only God can ultimately re- restore those relationships. Only he can ultimately fix it all up. That's what the ram was symbolising. Only God can make atonement for us. Only God can fully cover our debts and pay the price for the damage that we've done to others, which he does ultimately through Jesus, as we'll see in a minute. Jesus is the ultimate guilt offering, according to Isaiah 53. Only Jesus can pay the price for our sin, but we need to express what Jesus did by doing what we can. And actually, that will help to rebuild trust with our neighbour, that our neighbour who we've wronged and hurt so much sees us doing all we can to repair that. That will help the trust. That will help them come back into reconciliation with us. But there will always be a gap that we cannot heal. We'll never be able to address the core issues. Only Jesus can fully restore all that has been broken in this world. Only he can heal the deep rifts that are between us and others. And our own attempts to restore things will never be enough. His death dealt with sin, paid the price in full, fully, absolutely, covered everything. All the consequences paid for. He is the ram. He is the guilt offering. It's all covered by him. But you go and repay. (laughs) You want to be part of Jesus. You go and repay. You make amends. You fix what you can. And it's never enough. But Jesus has it all covered. We live out what Jesus has achieved for us by doing whatever it is in our power to make things right with those we've harmed. That's God's demand and grace. I need to do everything I can to make up and repay the debts I owe, but I only can do that in the context that Jesus has done it all for us to make atonement. So chapter 1 of Leviticus, the blood of the Lamb covers our sins. Chapter 2, I surrender my life to God. Chapter 3, I enjoy peace with God. Chapter 4, I have forgiveness for my ongoing unintentional sins. But chapter 5, whenever there's sin, there's a price that has to be paid. And if I have wronged God and God has forgiven me, there's still a price to be paid for my sin. Because forgiveness and restitution are two different issues. God can look at my sin. You are cleansed, he says. I've forgiven you, but there's still the fact that I have damaged others. There's still the fact that I have the stolen ox in my herd and I need to take it back and make amends wherever possible. But ultimately, only he can make amends at the restoration of all things which we're still heading towards. Let's close with this, an illustration of what God is doing in the guilt offering. There was a guy named Monty Roberts who spent his youth in the high prairies of the United States of America. 
rounding up wild Mustangs. His name Monty. And he, he'd watch his abusive father tie the new horses to a post with a bridle and rope and then he'd frighten them with a blanket and they'd attempt to run away but by repeating the process over and over again his father was eventually able to break the spirit of the horse and control it any way he wanted. Another popular way to break a horse was to tie it to a tree or post and just beat it and beat it and beat it until its will was broken. Then the horse would submit to its master. Watching this happen, Roberts began to think there's got to be a better way (laughs) to train a horse, something more effective and more compassionate. So he went out into the plains and he observed how the wild horses communicated with each other and he observed how the lead mare of the herd related to a new horse that was attempting to join the, the herd. When a a young stallion attempted to join the herd, the lead mare would turn towards him, (laughs) flatten her ears and look directly into his eyes. And this was the language of and position of challenge. And what would happen was the stallion would then stop his approach towards the, the lead mare and would adopt the position of a juvenile horse, a foal, by pawing the ground and bowing in submission. The lead mare would then turn her flank towards the new horse and lift her ears, which was the offer of invitation. This was a powerful position of vulnerability for the lead mare because when she exposed her flank, she exposed the part of her body that predators would always attack. It was the body position of vulnerability and openness I expose my flank to you. A young stallion, (laughs) thank you very much. (laughs) That's a beautiful flank. A young stallion, given this invitation of the exposed flank, (laughs) the young stallion would inch closer to the lead mare. And then the lead mare would turn towards the young stallion again, flatten her ears, make direct eye contact, challenge again. This process of invitation and challenge would be repeated again and again and again until the two would eventually touch, which was always exhilarating because at that point the young stallion was admitted to the herd. So Roberts began exploring whether he could replicate this process of alternating between invitation and challenge when training a horse and he found out that if he acted like the lead horse, the horses adopted a submissive posture. But then when he exposed his flank, (laughs) the the horses inched closer. He simply imitated what he saw the lead mare doing. Today, Roberts can train even the most abused horses in minutes and he's famous and you can see it on YouTube and it's like deeply moving. And this is called horse whispering. And it's kind of what God is doing in the guilt offering and in the sacrificial system generally and through Jesus Christ. He invites and he challenges. He invites and he challenges. He offers, hey, come near. Draw near. This is what the word offering means. Come near to God. So God kind of exposes his flank (laughs) to his people, especially on the cross. 
And he's saying, I'm vulnerable, I'm open to you. Again and again in the sacrificial system, come, be forgiven. I want you to be close to me. I want to forgive your sins. I've done everything necessary to pay for your sins. I've completely covered them. Forgiveness is freely available. It's it's just, I want you to come. And I'm completely open to you. And you can come confidently. You can come boldly. You can become sure that I will forgive you. You can come to me full of hope. I've paid the price. It's all done for you. Can't you see how much I want you to come? I'm completely exposed to you. Come in. And the priests are there. Come in. Look what I've done to make it possible. Again and again, he says through the sacrificial system, can you see? I want you to be forgiven and your guilt to be removed. But then as we come, as Israel came, Day after day after day, he keeps challenging, he keeps challenging, he keeps challenging, he keeps confronting them with their sin. He keeps disturbing and demanding again and again and again. You can only come to me on my terms. I am the lead horse, as it were. You can only come if you are genuinely repentant in tangible, real ways. You cannot play games with me. You cannot give me lip service. You need to get on your knees. You need to crawl forward. I am the lead horse. Go back to your wife. Ask her for for forgiveness. Sort it out with her. I don't care if it takes you your whole life. Rebuild her trust. That's your mission. You cannot be part of me if you will not do these things. Challenge, challenge. And yet, hey, see my flank. See how much I want you to come in. See what I have done for you. See the way I have made atonement for you. Look at my son. How can I get more vulnerable to you? That parent you've shamed, that work colleague you've betrayed, that business associate you've cheated, that child you've embittered, go to them. You cannot come in to the herd unless you do these things. You cannot be part of the life of the herd unless you live like the life of the herd. You cannot come to me if you do not genuinely make these things happen in your life. You cannot love me and hate your brother, as 1 John puts it. That is impossible. But see how much I want you to come in. See how much I want to forgive you. See how I can heal all your relationships and help you. I've done everything necessary for it to happen. But if you want to be in my world, go and repay what you have stolen. And this is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. God reaching out. I want you to come. Of course I do. Why would I go to all this trouble to send my son to die on the cross? But hey, in that same cross, can you, can you not see how terrible sin is? Can, I, can you not see how committed I am that you would not keep sinning? 1 John is lovely, isn't it? The letter of John, first letter. John was so close to Jesus. 
And look at the way he talks. I write this so that you will not sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But I write this so that you will not sin. But if you come and confess God is faithful and just and he will forgive you your sins. But anyone born of God does not continue to sin. But Jesus' blood will purify you from all unrighteousness. You cannot love God and hate your brother. But God is so ready to forgive and love you. But anyone who abides in God abides in love. And if you abide in love and you are really with God, you cannot hate your brother. And it just goes round and round and round. And God, through Jesus Christ, holds out his arms to us. Hey, I want you and I've made amends. You can't be part of me if you will not. Go to your brother. So God woos us and wins us. And it takes time. It's a process. It's relational. It's not mechanistic. It's not some system. It's not this bunch of rules and levers which we pull and we put money in the slot and wham, we're forgiven. It's this relationship with our Heavenly Father who, got, who leads us into obedience. He wins and woos us in such a way that our spirits aren't broken. And yet, we're not running everywhere out of control either. Invitation and challenge. Invitation and cha- challenge. That's the guilt offering. Interesting. So putting this all together. Chapter 1, the burnt offering. Chapter 2, the grain offering. Chapter 3, the peace offering. Chapter 4, the sin offering. Chapter 5, the guilt offering. Jesus paid it all. Fully dealt with. Now put yourself in the priest's shoes. Priests would get up at sunup, which would be about what time? 5.30, 6 o'clock for the priests. They would start. And what would he do? What would he offer, offer first in his priestly day? The burnt offering, which was for the cleansing of sin through the shedding of blood. And then what offering would follow? the grain offering. Good class. Then thirdly, the peace offering. So we're forgiven of our sins. We've surrendered completely to God through the grain offering. We now celebrate peace and fellowship with God through the peace offering. And then he offers number four, what sacrifice? The sin offering. Is he working up a sweat by now? He's been gone since daybreak. Is he tired? He's been dealing with people's sins. Is that fun? Now he gets to sacrifice number five, which is the what offering? The guilt offering. Now he's been offering sacrifices since daybreak. What do you think is a good work day? Let's say nine hours. (laughs) Seven and a half. Let's up it an hour and a half and get nine hours. (laughs) The priest worked for nine hours. And it's interesting if you study Jewish history because the first five sacrifices are meant to be seen together to paint a picture. In Jewish history, the priest, the priest at the end of the day 
would walk to the front of the altar and this was the ninth hour. This was nine hours into his day, sometime around 3 p.m., and the priest would walk to the front after he'd offered the last sacrifice. And the Jewish tradition is that at the ninth hour, 3 o'clock, the priest would speak to the people who had gathered and he would say in a loud voice, And then he was, it was over for, for the day and he'd go home. So the idea is he'd offered all the sacrifices to make you right with God, right? All five together portray a picture of how to be right, how to be close with God and have a relationship with God. Then the last one, he says, it is finished. Now the phrase it is finished also means paid in full in the commercial world. It means paid in full. The idea is that all the blood had been offered, we're all right with God, and then the priest is exhausted, he's sweaty, he's got gunk and bits of stuff all over his body. He walks home. You know there's a little catch there. What does he have to do the next day? Same thing. And the next day? And you thought your job was monotonous. Because we just keep sinning day after day. And he offers bulls, he offers goats, he offers sheep, he offers rams, he offers birds. He offers all that blood. But the truth is, he has to come back to the the next day and do it all again. Now if you were a priest, would you long for a sacrifice that did it all in one hit? (laughs) You certainly would. So when we study the book of Leviticus, we come to the end of the five sacrifices Are we satisfied? We're thinking, oh, surely not. This can't go on and on and on. How many sacrifices did they offer every day, every month, every year, every decade, every hundred years, every thousand years? Surely there must be a better way. In John 19, John describes the last moment of Jesus' life. Jesus is on the cross. It's about He's about to breathe his last breath. And notice what it says. Verse 30, when he had received the drink, Jesus says, say it with me, it is finished. And again, the Greek expression means also paid in full. So chapter 1, the burnt offering. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Jesus Christ died for our sins. Chapter 2, the grain offering. In Romans 12, Paul says, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. Leviticus chapter 3, the peace offering. Jesus says, my peace I give you. Leviticus chapter 4, the sin offering. 1 John 1, 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then the guilt offering. Jesus Christ offers his life for us and at the end of his life he says, it is finished. Paid in full. So the first five chapters of Leviticus are showing us the five aspects of Jesus' death. When Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled all five offerings. Is Leviticus really a blueprint of Jesus Christ and what he would do for us? Yes. And I just think that's incredible. 